Like Scott said, this morning we're going to be talking about false teaching. Uh, and also, like he said, it's not necessarily good that we just go at every false teaching and, and describe why it's a bad thing. We need to see Christ is sufficient. And the Colossians were failing to see that. They, in fact, denied the f- sufficiency of Christ by seeking after other things. And so we're going to look at that. And Paul addressing that for the first time in the letter directly. He spent a lot of time, this is who Christ is. This is why he's sufficient. And now he's going to say, this is why these things were failing you. So we're going to look at that. But I really want to challenge you to examine yourself. We need to be aware of these things as a church, but we need to be aware of these things as individuals. So if we don't confess our false belief, if we don't recognize our false belief, it's incredibly damaging to the church and to the individual. And so what we desire is freedom in the gospel. So it's likely that you, uh, I mean, it's possible that you are not saved and you've fully bought into a false gospel or you're trying to save yourself. But it's also possible that you have been saved. And I believe that's true for most or many of the Colossians. And they're starting to, though they've received Christ, they're starting to take on these other things in efforts to grow in their relationship with Christ. And so Paul's pointing out that's not where it's found. And so we're going to walk through some of those things and I want to really apply it to us well. And so uh, the, the theme of this is our belief informs our behavior. Our belief informs our behavior. So if we don't see belief informs behavior, then we're not challenged to look at our behavior. We don't consider what we believe. We just go through the motions. So that's what we're looking at this morning. And everything we do is going to be coming out of what we believe. And the fullness, freedom that we can experience in Christ has been suppressed by our fleshly desire to subject ourselves to rules and regulations or to systems that we think are going to sanctify us when only Christ can do it. And so we ask these questions, and the questions that the Colossians are asking and the questions that we constantly ask is, what does it take to be saved? What does it take to grow in depth with God? What does it take to, um, to gain more? What more is there to be gained? How has He offered us Himself but still left out some things? And we see what the world's doing, we see what certain denominations are doing, what other religions are doing, and we consider, are we missing out on something? And we let those questions become more than what they should be. And we know salvation is in Jesus, but we ask what what more do we need to be doing to, to quote Colossians, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of Christ. And we put our own efforts into gaining these things. And so it's like we're saying, I know, believe in Jesus, but what do we do after that? I get it, believe the gospel, but now what? And there, is, there are things that follow, but it's not going to be things that gain us favor with God. It's not going to be things that gain us depths in knowing who God is. Christ has done that, and Christ is doing that. So everything we do flows out of believing Christ has done that, and He is sufficient. So the theme has been and will continue to be Christ is supreme, Christ is sufficient. We see that, we know that, we believe that, we celebrate that, and then all of our actions flow from that. If we're seeking anything else, then we're not believing Christ is sufficient. All right, so here's some things I think we can possibly be doing when we're asking that question. We, we could answer it with, should we be eating a kosher diet, observing uh, the complete rest on the Sabbath, wearing specific clothing, forcing our 
our uncircumcised brothers to go and get snipped. Or, for that matter, pouring all our energy and effort into following all 613, give or take, laws of the Old Testament. Should we be speaking in tongues, seeing visions, having prophetic dreams, being slain in the Spirit, carrying spiritual tokens with us, casting out evil spirits, praying to the saints, worshiping the angels, pleading the blood of Jesus for healing, for healing, reading additional books of the Bible or altogether different books of the Bible that we hold equal in authority. Those are all things that happen. Those are things that people believe. I'm, not, I'm neither saying they're for sure wrong or they're possibly good or there's flexibility. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is we look to those things to, to add to the gospel. Now, you may be far removed from those things because a lot of it is far removed from Southern Baptist tradition for sure. And so maybe it's more like the question or the answer, does it take baptism? Does it take fasting, self-sacrifice, other spiritual disciplines? Is it found in taking communion, giving tithe, giving to the poor, reading or listening to supplemental books and sermons, being in a DNA group, going to missional community family time, being a part of the core group training, coming to the worship gathering, Helping with work day. A lot of you missed out on that. Working hard to love the unlovable and serve the needy. In addition to things we take on, there's also things we have to stop doing. So is it found in not being arrogant, prideful, self-loathing, lustful, angry? Should we stop cussing, lying, cheating, hating, drinking, smoking, seeing rated R movies except for ones about Jesus, listening to secular music, gambling, dancing, going on vacation, overeating, gossiping, wasting money on temporal things? The list can go on and on and on. Things we have to start doing, things we have to stop doing in order to gain a better, deeper understanding to experience the fullness of Christ. Is it found in those things? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying, though some of these things are explicitly sinful, I'm not saying you shouldn't do these things and you should do these things. I'm not saying do away with certain things, add certain things. In fact, I'm saying the opposite of that. We should not be focused on what we're doing and not doing. We should be focused on seeing Christ as sufficient and our actions flowing from that. Holding ourselves to obedience to God because Christ is sufficient and our actions flow from that. Now, certainly some of these things are gray areas, and some of them are even good things. You absolutely, I believe, should be a part of a DNA group and should whatever else you saw was a good thing. There's some things you certainly should be doing, and there's things you certainly should stop doing. But what is our motivation in these things? And if we're asking what's right and what's wrong, I think we're asking the wrong question. We need to see that we need to ask the question, is it doing and not doing certain things that we find the full assurance of understanding? Is it the doing this list of things and the forsaking this list of things, is that going to be where we find sufficiency? No, it's not. Fullness is in Christ. Spiritual development is not going to be found in a system that's Christless. It has to be all about Christ, completely surrounding, focusing, centered Christ. And the reason the Colossians believed it, the reason we believe it, is because of false teaching. And so we're going to look at false teaching this morning by first looking at false teachers. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
For such persons, that is, the persons who, who depart from this doctrine, these doctrines do not serve the Lord Christ but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So false teaching is present in every culture. And it has been and it will continue to be. It is by smooth talk and flattery that they deceive the naive. Naivety is, is, a, is not a question of intellect. It's a question of experience, understanding. It's a question of whether or not you have wisdom. So it's not to say you're dumb if you buy into false doctrine. It's to say you were, you were blind to it being false because you were naive. And false teachers know that. Some do it intentionally. Some do it unintentionally. Whatever reasons they have, they flatter, which means they seek to make you happy. And they have smooth talk, which doesn't necessarily mean they're slick and manipulative, though they are. It means they present things that are plausible, that's pleasing, it's comforting, it's warm fuzzies, it's sugar-coated, it's big smiles on a Sunday morning and a good joke before the sermon. It's sneaky. They're good at what they do, and people want to hear it. You don't follow false teachers because they're hard or difficult or, or mean. You follow false teachers because they're seductive. You buy into it. That's at verse 8 we talked about last time. It's, it takes you captive. And so the reason we as elders are so protective of doctrine is because we see that plausible, pleasing things can mislead the naive sheep. And if you depart even in the slightest from these doctrines, it's dangerous. So we're talking about Paul here this morning. He wrote Colossians. He also wrote Romans. And he also wrote 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians 11 says, verse 12 through 15 says, And what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They will appear to be righteous. We could be false teachers. We've only pointed you to the gospel. I could be misleading you right now. So what is your guard against these things? How do you know? Do you just buy into it? Do you turn on your TV and watch it and just buy into whatever they're selling? There are some wacky things on TV. You just roll up to a church on a Sunday morning because it's a church and go in and take in whatever's being taught and say, oh yeah, that sounds right. Logically, it makes sense. It, it feels right because it's those things that deceive the naive, mislead the sheep. It's those things that depart from the doctrine. It's the flattering things, the things that seem right, logically make sense, that lead us down paths of craziness, that's Christless. And if, if we're buying into those things, then we're not seeing Christ as sufficient. And so false teachers get away with it because it sounds right. In Colossians, that was the introduction. So in Colossians chapter 2, we talked briefly about verse 8. I want to look at it just for a second again because it really informs everything we're about to talk about. It says, See to it that no, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here we've, we talked about how taking captive is this thing that is tricky, it's sneaky, it just happens. You fall into it, you're taken captive, unaware, and you bought in, you've given yourself to whatever it is. And Paul sees this happening there, and he, more than anyone, knows the dangers of false teaching. And so he is warning them, do not let it take you captive. And he gives you two reasons here that these teachings fall short. Because they're according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And later he says, they're a shadow of things to come. And we'll talk about that. And secondly, they're not according to Christ. Later he'll say, they're not held fast to the head that is Christ. So two reasons we can't believe them. They're based on human tradition. It's going to get us nowhere. We're humans. We know that. There has to be something more. And we see it's in Christ. And secondly, it's not according to Christ. It's, it's for whatever selfish gain or pleasure or whatever it is, it's false. Not according to Christ. And it can't be trusted. It will fall short. So basically, 16 through 23 that we're going to discuss this morning is, a, is an elaboration of those two points. So remember what we talked about in the passage before. Christ has cut us off from the old us. He's baptized us in Himself, made us anew in Him. Sin, guilt, shame is nailed to the cross in Christ. Debt has been canceled. He's disarmed the authorities of the world, the spiritual authorities of the world, and He's put them to open shame by being victorious over them. And so now we're rooted in Him, we're built up in Him, we are made new in Him, we walk in Him, and we are grateful for it. And if that is true, Paul goes on to say this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moons or, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and se severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lot here to unpack, but I want to spend some time dealing with what we think the Colossians were dealing with. So, first of all, we don't know. We don't really know what heresy was going on there, but there's a lot of questioning, there's a lot of speculation, but I think there's also some clarity in what Paul has done so far. So he's addressed things explicitly, and he's named a few things in this passage we just read, and, and one author says the difficulty in determining what the heresy looked like is like listening to one half of a telephone conversation or reading someone's mail when that person is writing a response. So Paul is responding to something, and we can look at the response and we can make 
some, some assumptions so we can infer some things, but there are some things that are explicitly clear and we're going to walk through those so that we can look at ourselves and we can examine our beliefs and we can see our behavior and consider what we might be believing in the same way. And so the Colossians were faced with judgments and temptations to give in to false teaching, to take on additions to the gospel, and it's a, a mixture of things um, cultures came together, different understandings of salvation, different understandings of holiness, a multitude of practices and traditions and festivals and observances all came together and Christ is shouting with everything he, I mean, Paul's shouting with everything he can, Christ is everything you need. Christ is sufficient. So far we see they, they doubted the humanity of Christ. So Paul says, in him, the full deity dwells bodily. And apparently they've also doubted the deity of Christ. So Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. They've sought wisdom and knowledge in, at a deeper level and they've attempted to access God in different ways. And so Paul says, In Christ, in Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Him are all treasures and wisdom and knowledge. Do not be taken captive by philosophies of, of human origin. And they've also taken on these Jewish practices, circumcision, observances. And, and Paul says to them, forcing physical circumcision and food regulations and observing the Sabbath and festivals, you should not be judged by those things. And they've promoted asceticism. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. They've promoted these extreme sacrifices, these appearances of holiness. And Paul says to that, they have no value. There's nothing in them that will accomplish anything you desire. They only add to the indulgence of the flesh. And so we have a, a lot of things here that need to define. If you're like me and you read Paul say things that are applicable to a first century uh, group of believers, not clearly applicable to us, then it's necessary to look up definitions. So I'm going to give you some definitions. Uh, some people really like definitions. Some people are bored by definitions. So depending on who you are, this may be fun. If it's not, then I don't know. Play something on your iPhone or something. Okay. Gnosticism. This is not Gnosticism because it's a second century heresy. This is first century. But it is, it's likely this is the developing stages of the Gnostic traditions. And so Gnostic... The word agnostic comes from Gnostic. That's a hint if you know what an agnostic is. If you don't, then I'll tell you. An agnostic is someone who just doesn't know. They don't know if, if there's a God or who's God. They just would say, I don't know. And so Gnostic is knowledge. They're without knowledge. So the Gnostics really valued knowledge, but they also had some wacky beliefs along with it. They saw Christ as a deity-like person who came to free the spirit from the evil body. And so the Gnostics would teach all kinds of things that would, would pull us away from the body. Asceticism was a part of their beliefs. They, they would even not bathe so that they seemed like they were doing harm to the flesh so they would exalt the spirit. It's weird. You stink bad enough, you're really holy. That was what it was like. So Gnostics were crazy, but the problem with Gnosticism is knowledge isn't enough to save. No matter how much of it you have, in fact, it's enough to condemn you. And only, only in Christ is there true knowledge. So there's a lot more to the Gnostic belief, but this isn't Gnosticism. It's just sprinkled in there. 
And then there's this human philosophies that Paul points to. And so it's this intellectual seeking of meaning. Even today, philosophy is all about what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose in what we're doing? So these human philosophies are intellectually seeking understanding. The problem with human philosophies is they're human. So philosophy is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's centered around Christ. Knowledge isn't enough to say. Trying to find meaning within ourselves or within creation isn't enough. True meaning is in Christ. Then there's mysticism. Mysticism is, is going to later be defined differently and, and we apply it to our culture differently. But mysticism in, in this century was seeking an emotional or spiritual experience, which is still the same today, to, a, to attain an, an understanding and an intellectual ability to obtain uh, through meditation or contemplation deeper meaning in life to to experience not intellectually but emotionally deeper things, spiritually deeper things. And so he says it's the worship of angels. It's going on in detail about visions. It's puffed up without reason but with a sensuous mind, desiring the senses to be stimulated. The problem with mysticism is, first of all, it's likely demonic. That's a big problem. But also... Uh, that it's, it's not about finding what feels good or what seems right. If we get caught up in what feels right, then we'll, get, we'll deviate from Christ because Christ doesn't always offer us what feels right. Sometimes what's miserable is God sanctifying us. And so if we get caught up in thinking we have to have good feelings in all of this, then we become mystics. And then there's asceticism, which is Ultimately, behavior modification. It is stoic, but it's behavior modification in a way that you damage the flesh. You, you harm yourself in order to exalt the spirit, in order to make it more about the spirit. It's, it's fighting and working towards uh, a righteousness that you, that you don't have power to create. So it's pride and it's self-righteousness. And, and you need a savior and it can't be you but you're trying to make it you. It's attempting to manipulate God into being favorable to you. It's, it's attempting to, to prove to everyone else you're holy by your actions. And that, that flows into both this, these Jewish actions and the legalism. And so the Jewishness we're seeing there is circumcision, observing Sabbath, doing certain festivals. The problem with that is it's completely fulfilled in Christ we can't accomplish anything. And so asceticism and, and these Jewish beliefs that only replaces what we're trying uh, to find in Christ with things that don't work. We're trying to conquer sin with things that don't conquer sin, with our pride, with our self-righteousness. And it will fall short because it's of human design. And the same is true about legalism. And so legalism is what we're going to focus most of our attention on today. I really think the biggest problem in our uh, Bible-saturated culture is we see the rules more than we see anything else. And we want to follow the rules and appear to be moral more than we want anything else. More than we want to find satisfaction in Christ, we want to be good in our, in our own efforts. And I think that's true about everyone in this room, whether you're an all-out legalist or you just dabble occasionally or you fight it with licentiousness, which is a bad way to fight it. It's just another ditch you don't want to be in. So all of us are dealing with this, and I really want to spend time breaking that down. So this is where we really have to examine ourselves. But legalism, in its most simple definition, is moral behavior 
that does not spring forth from faith in Christ. It's moral behavior that doesn't spring forth from faith in Christ. So the problem with legalism is it appears to be good. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. It causes anxiety. It it diminishes grace. It produces doubt. It's based on human efforts alone. But it appears to be good. It may be tormenting you on the inside. You could feel stressed out all the time because you just can't keep it up. But it appears that you're doing well. And the biggest problem with all of these is that gain you hell. That's all it's worth. Stressful life, hell on earth, and then hell. And so, I mean, mysticism and it may be pleasing and, and temporarily satisfying, but it ends up in hell. And then the rest of them are just torture. I mean, you're, you're going to fight hard to be good and struggle at it because you can't be your Savior and then you get hell in the end. So I desire, as you should desire, to be free from these things. Freedom is only going to be found in Christ. And so we have to look to the gospel. We have to believe the gospel. Just like the Colossians have received Christ, we've received Christ. And now we begin to look at the little things as if they're going to be what save us. Instead of seeing Christ has already saved us, He will continue to save us. And these false teachers are presently casting judgment, offering forms of worship that are not going to be sufficient Yet we believe them. So what does this look like in our culture? All right. So I told you we're going to focus on legalism, but I want to address a couple things that we do see in our culture that maybe you are exposed to. And, and so mysticism to us is emotionalist, hyper-charismatic movements that, that stir our emotions, that get us pumped up and excited about something temporarily. They get us excited about something, whether it's temporary every Sunday morning or a temporary event that gets you pumped to come back and to, to your home and to be on mission and to do good things and to work hard at it until it wanes off. So that's just, this is mysticism. We're convinced through these emotions that something real happened. Now, we absolutely should be engaged emotionally. Worshiping, singing songs, we absolutely need to have our everything in it. But if it's all about the emotion, it's all about the emotional experience, It's likely it's deviated from the gospel. And so we see this if you turn on TBN at any time. First of all, there's some crazy things like big pink hairdos and all kinds of weird, creepy things. And then there's guys who will say things like, if you buy my Bible, then God will make you rich. Just buy it. Try it out. And also comes with it this prayer rug. If you pray on this rug, God will hear every single one of your prayers. This sounds crazy to me, but some people, maybe even some in this room, would buy into that. And so I want you to know there's freedom from that. Do not buy into false teaching. Do not hear that and think, that's the solution. God hasn't been hearing my prayers. I need that prayer room. I'm really struggling to pay my bills. I need to give to this guy because he's convinced me through using the Bible that that's the solution. It's foolishness. It's ridiculous, but so many are buying into it. In fact, it's so easy to buy into that it's quickly and rapidly growing in ways that are unexplainable. The biggest church in America is completely heretical. That's a problem. 
And it's so easy to make fun of, and I'm so tempted to go on rants and just joke about it because it's ridiculous to me. Because I see that cannot be true. If our Savior was a vagabond, if our Savior roamed the streets homeless, if our Savior was poor, how can it be true that we're supposed to be rich? If John the Baptist, who our Savior said was a good man, was beheaded in prison, if every disciple, if every follower of Christ in the first century and even today in other countries are extremely persecuted but never give up on their faith, if they're dying for what they believe in, if everything in the world is taken from them, how can it be true that if you get Jesus, you get health, wealth, and prosperity? It doesn't make any logical sense, but millions are buying into it. And we're exporting it to countries. They have nothing, and we're telling them, if you get Jesus, you'll be healthy. If you get Jesus, your kids won't die of malaria. If you get Jesus, you'll be wealthy, and you'll never have to worry about anything again. It's just not true. Yet we just, we let it go on. We don't fight against it. It's just too hard to fight when you get in conversations with people who really buy into this, it's too awkward. It's too uncomfortable. But they're trapped in false belief. There's no freedom to be had in it. And it's incredibly damaging. And so we have to, like Paul, speak out against these mystical things that are just not true. And then there's human knowledge. Sorry, I can't calm down. Throw this podium. And there's human knowledge and wisdom, which is also just as troubling. And we see it in our political arenas. There's this philosophy, this, it's a philosophical elitism. And they, they think truth is relative. And they're convinced of it. And they, they, they fight to make truth absolutely subjective. So whatever's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. The only problem with that is it doesn't work out logically. Because if, if what I hold to be absolutely true is, is fundamentally opposed and explicitly opposed to what you think is true, who's right? And who decides what's true? It just can't work. There has to be objective truth and we know what it is. So the objective truth that our culture, an American culture has created, whether they admit it or not, is tolerance. We have to be tolerant of what people believe. So that's why they fight for subjective truth because it seems most tolerant. But we'll still hold the things that are damaging to people so you can't murder anyone. You're not allowed to just go into a store and take whatever you want without paying. There's, there's things that matter. We'll still hold to those things. We'll keep that objective. But Christians are intolerant, so there's no way they have objective truth. Christians are against the happiness of this gay couple. Christians are against the freedom of this woman to have an abortion. There's no way they're right. Their philosophy, their understanding of truth cannot be right because it's intolerant, which is Ridiculous. The reason murder is illegal is because it's damaging. What the culture doesn't see that Christ, the Holy Spirit, has revealed to us is abortion and gay marriage is damaging. It kills. It sends people to hell. And whether it looks like it on the surface or not is not the question. 
It's fundamentally outside of what we think is true, what the Bible says is true, if we hold it to be true, is objective for every human being. And God desires not to put people in a place that they're, they're unhappy and, and failing and end up in death. He desires to free them to greater truth. He desires to free them to deep joy in Him and only in Him. But if we convince ourselves that these the culture and its philosophies and its knowledge and its wisdom is right because it, it, they are right. I mean, it seems like it is intolerant of us to not allow these things. I can't logically think of a reason why a gay couple can't get married. So why be opposed to it? If we fool ourselves into believing that, then we're buying into false doctrine that is damning. It's damaging and it sends people to hell. So there can't be room for it in the church. And it's the most loving thing we can do to hold people to believe what is true. And then there's asceticism in our culture, this behavior modification that we see rapidly growing within the church. This treating sacrifice as if it's a payment to God instead of a worshipful experience. And, and it, it, it manifests itself clearly in the opposite of the, the prosperity gospel, the poverty gospel. This, I have to give everything away. I have to completely uh, give all my goods, all my money. I have to be homeless like Christ was homeless. I have to suffer physically in order to experience God. And it's just as false. There's not an across-the-board rule how much money you're allowed to have to be a good Christian. It's all about seeing Christ is sufficient. Alright. Now legalism. This is the biggie. This is the biggie one. Legalism is incredibly sneaky. It's in here. It's in this room right now. There's, there's rules you're imposing on me right now. He's got to be finished in like 10 minutes. Because that's the rules. I'm going to be uncomfortable if he doesn't stop. So I'm going to impose on him a standard that I think all sermons need to be 40 minutes long. Or 25 minutes long. Or whoever you are. You're imposing laws on other people. And so the church does this in many ways. We say... In order to be a part of the church, unbiblical standards, in order to be a part of the Southern Baptist Church, you're not allowed to drink or dance. You can't pray in tongues. You can't watch TVM. That's not a rule. Okay, we impose these rules on the church because we take it upon ourselves to create sanctification for the church. We are establishing what purity of the church looks like. And so we impose these unbiblical rules and you're not allowed to be here until you give up your drinking. You're not allowed to be here until you stop smoking. You're not allowed to be here until you agree on the carpet color. We can go ridiculous. There's no carpet in here now to disagree on. But we can go ridiculous with rules that we impose about the church. Because we don't see Christ as sufficient to sanctify the church. Christ is sufficient to purify the church. He has already set up a standard to which we are to live. And He is enabling us to live to that standard as the church. And then we also impose legalism on the individual, on ourselves. We, see, we set standards for ourselves that are good. It keeps us far from sin. But we set standards for ourselves as if they are going to be what sanctifies us. We set these rules and regulations. We buy into rules and regulations because we think that's going to sanctify me. Certainly God will sanctify you through the use of things and experiences, but we cannot put our hope in the things. And so 
I've, I've read this, this uh, sermon by John Piper on legalism and I just had to copy and paste a chunk of it because it so beautifully defines legalism in a way that we need to hear it clearly defined. And it's, it's this. The legalist is always a very moral person. In fact, the majority of moral people are legalists because of their so-called Judeo-Christian morality inherited from their forefathers. It does not grow out of humble, contrite reliance on the mercies of an enabling God. On the contrary, for the legalist, morality serves the same function that immorality does the antinomian, the free thinker, the progressive. Namely, it serves as an expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. They are blood brothers in God's sight because both reject the sovereignty and mercy of God in Christ as a means to righteousness and use their own morality or immorality as a means to express their independence, their self-sufficiency, their self-determination. So see this. Morality and immorality, if rooted in our efforts to please God or be close to God or find satisfaction are equally evil, demonic, sinful things. He says they're blood brothers. So we're, consider brothers, the, the story of the prodigal son. They're brothers, okay? The prodigal clearly sinful, running from God. Clearly. There's no doubt he is a sinner. And we often miss the sin of the elder brother who stayed at home. He did everything right. He was completely moral. He worked hard for his father. But the young brother who runs back home gets the party. They're blood brothers, equally evil. The Pharisee and the prodigal, both sinners, motivated by the same things, just on opposite ends. Legalism appears good. The older brother seemed right. But both, both are opposed to the Gospel. So the dangers we must guard ourselves from are not always clear because they look good. But Paul gives us some tools against it, some ways of discovering the problem. Let's go back to verse 16. He says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So don't let them pass judgment. Don't let them disqualify you for what I see as three reasons. Verse 17, their insights are mere shadows of reality. The book of Hebrews, some believe also written by Paul, incredibly debated, unnecessary to discuss now, but the book of Hebrews focuses a lot on the emphasis of the shadow. The Old Testament sacrificial systems and laws and rules and regulations are but a shadow and completely and totally fulfilled in Christ. So when I want to take rest in the Sabbath, I don't sit on my couch all day and not lift a finger. I worship Jesus. I find rest in Jesus because He has fulfilled the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. And when I 
want to live life in worship of God by obeying the law. I don't write out all the laws and make sure I'm following them exactly. I worship God and I allow my worship of Christ, my seeing Christ as sufficient to flow into my actions. I see now the rules are good. The law is good. But it's fulfilled in Christ. So I don't have to eat a kosher diet. I don't have to uh, not cut the sides of my beard. Because I do that. I don't know if you noticed. It would grow and scraggly and it would be weird. I don't have to send my wife outside of the city certain times of the month. I don't have to look at my neighbor's bull and, and decide whether or not I need to go and make a fair trade for his bull and his property. I mean, the rules can get ridiculous because Christ has fulfilled those things. It's not that they're evil things. It's to practice those things as if they're going to save us is not seeing Christ. It's denying the sufficiency of Christ. They were all a shadow. Even now, the things we do, the worship we have, the rules we follow, it's all a shadow. Why, Why would we buy back into the shadow if we have the person of Christ? He is the fulfillment. He is ours to have. He has clothed us in Himself. And the second thing, their visions are false because they are informed by sensuous, fleshly minds. So whether logically or emotionally driven, it's fleshly. It's fleshly. There's no way around it. It's human. It's not of God. And, and thirdly, it's stopped. They stopped holding to Christ as the head. They've, they've deviated from the source of life. Where does, our, where does our body get its instruction? From the head. How do we know what to do with our hands? From the head. If we see something that needs to be get, to get done, to be get done, if we see something that needs to be accomplished, how do we accomplish it without our head telling our body what to do? The answer is you can't. You don't. Many denominations, many religious systems are set up on the head of a person or a, a board of people and it does not work. It deviates from Christ as the head. If you cut off the head, decapitation ruins the body. Christ is the head. If you deviate from Christ as the source of life, the one who leads and informs everything we do, then you will fall into heresy every time. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's almost like he's being mocking. Don't touch that. Don't handle that. These are silly things he's emphasizing. It's silly. It's referring to things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Why submit to that? Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The basic application for this to us today is total and complete surrender to Christ. He is sufficient. In all of our lives, both our salvation and our sanctification, we have to believe that if Christ has died to these human regulations, we too are dead to these human regulations. 
And so what I don't want to see happen this morning is you hear me say, the rules don't matter. I don't want you to think, examine yourself, see that you're legalistic and think, I'm giving up. I'm not going to be legalist anymore. I'm doing away with the rules. That's not the solution. The rules are good no matter the motivation. But the motivation matters as far as your sanctification and, and your freedom in the gospel. So you, if you are in here today and you're not free in the gospel because you see all these rules, all these regulations, all these things you have to do, all these things you can't do, and you can't get past those things, and you're stuck in these ruts, and you hate life most of the time, you're worn out most of the time, you're stressed out by the responsibility, you hate yourself because you constantly fail. If that's you, then this is the freedom. Christ is sufficient. Believe He is sufficient. Praise Him for His sufficiency. And see that all that flows from that is good. And I want to give you practical things to do, but I'm afraid you'll take them and you'll make them legalistic rules. Because there are practical things. You should read your Bible. You should pray. You should fellowship with believers. You should be around People who hold you to the belief of the gospel as often as possible. But if you make that your list of rules to live by, you're going to fall right back into the same traps. And, it, and there's no way around it because we have, we, we've been made new in Christ, but our flesh is still incredibly sinful. And we buy into those things constantly. So we need the gospel. We need to hear Christ nailed it to the cross. Christ has conquered these things. Your enemy has no power against you because Christ is sufficient. And it will be the resounding message of Colossians until we reach the end of this book. And even when we get to the end of it, we will still fall into the traps of this world. We will still struggle to believe Christ is sufficient because we're stuck in a world full of systems and rules and regulations that convince us that's the truth. And so, church, we gather in this place. We gather in homes. We gather in public. We gather with the understanding the gospel is true. It is at work within us. And then we wade through the rules and regulations together, holding them to the only truth, the Bible, holding them to the one thing we know to be true, what the Word of God says is true. We dismiss the things that are untrue and we take on the things that are true all in worship of God. You cannot save yourself. Christ has done the work to save you. He's clothed you in Himself. The Spirit is at work within you to sanctify you. And He will use everything in your life to do it. And the greater truth is there's freedom to be found in Christ. And so should we follow the rules? Absolutely. But do it in worship to God. Let's pray. And let's seek God because only He can do this work in our hearts. No amount of preaching and teaching and, and me trying to convince you is going to do it. We have to trust the Spirit, so let's seek Him together. Lord, we know we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we are seeing more and more that we cannot save ourselves, that there's nothing in this world that will save us, that You alone can transform our hearts. You alone can bring life. You alone are sufficient for all that we need. And so I pray, God, that You would give us wisdom, give us deep understanding that we would not be naively, naivety, <laughs> that we would not let our naivety lead us into sin, into false belief, but that we would be informed, that we would experience truth, that we would know the Spirit is real and active and working within us. 
Reveal to us Your goodness. Reveal to us Your truth. Let us today find freedoms in the Gospel that we've yet to experience. In all these things, God, we praise You. Let even things today that are untrue be dismissed by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.